within our reach, breaking the cycle of disadvantage. That's the title of a recent and much heralded book by today's Westminster Town Hall Forum speaker, Elizabeth Bamberger Shore, lecturer in social medicine at Harvard University. I, Donald Meisel, minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and moderator of these forums over the past 10 years, can't think of a better topic or a more appropriate choice of speaker given our ongoing commitment through these forums to introduce you, the public, to voices of conscience from around the nation who help all of us to see key issues facing our society from an ethical perspective. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. That's what it's all about. That's the name of the game. In her book, Ms. Shore moves us into pages that expand our vision of ways to attack entrenched poverty, class distinction, poor health, poor schooling, too early parenthood, racial isolation, family chaos, and their serious consequences, their rotten outcomes, to borrow some of her language. She prods us to think more creatively about how and why certain interventions successfully break the cycle of the disadvantaged. Her message is potent and persuasive because it is superbly effective in highlighting concrete examples of excellent programs that have positively shaped the lives of poor children. Well, it's one thing to read the challenge that she puts before us. It's quite another to hear her point it out, reason it out, shout it out in person, which she will now do under the heading, Fighting Poverty, Early Interventions That Work. So I invite you, listen up to Elizabeth B. Shore. Thank you very much, Dr. Mizell. I'm really so delighted to be here. You know, when I got the invitation to come here, I told my husband, who had spoken here uh, a year ago last April, and <clears throat> he said, oh, you've got to accept that invitation. Actually, he discourages me from accepting a lot of them because when I do come out to speak, it means his dinner is going to come from the freezer, which he's not really crazy about. But he said, this one you've really got to accept. He said, it's such a wonderful group to speak to. He said, the people are well-informed and they're warm and they're wonderful and they'll treat you marvelously, so go. And I, I, so I'm here with his blessing, which is unusual. Uh, <laughs> I'm also particularly pleased to be here because it, um, it really gives me a chance to salute the preeminent role that um, Minneapolis has achieved in, in efforts to improve the circumstances of children. In the last several months, I've been traveling a great deal around the country 
and I've been very much heartened by the upsurge of concern with children's and family issues everywhere and with the widespread determination to respond in innovative and creative ways to new sets of problems and greater problems. But nowhere is this determination more apparent than here in Minneapolis, where the leadership from your business community, your mayor and other public servants, and your voluntary organizations have become real beacons for, for others around the country to emulate. In Minneapolis and elsewhere in the country, there seems to be a real reawakening to the necessity to do something about the deteriorating condition of children in poverty, about the destructive effects of street drugs and homelessness, of unmarried teenage childbearing, violent crime, and about youngsters who are leaving school without the skills to become productively employed. There's also a widespread new recognition here and around the country that many of the social arrangements that we have in place that are meant to respond to these problems are not working. Many states and local communities seem to be ready and much more, I might say, than the, than our federal government in Washington, states and communities do seem to be ready to try new ways of delivering services, new ways of collaborating, even to give up pieces of turf and outmoded ways of doing business. When I began the work that led to Within Our Reach more than seven years ago, it was in a climate of real doubt about the efficacy of any social policies to improve the futures of disadvantaged children. Anti-government ideology was the vogue and there was very little information available about efforts that had in fact worked. More important, most efforts to intervene had been so circumscribed and so diluted and so fragmented and often so late that there's no way they could have changed outcomes for the children who were growing up surrounded by poverty and despair. But probably most important in accounting for the sense that nothing worked was that massive changes in the American economy had totally overwhelmed our timid attempts to help. The decline in manufacturing and farming, the decline in, in um, in jobs that enable unskilled people to earn enough to support a family, transformed not just the economy, but transformed our inner cities, and in my view, transformed the inner lives of American families. Um, if you think about the rise in unmarried teenage childbearing as an example, uh, William Julius Wilson wrote a book which I think is seminal in this field called The Truly Disadvantaged, Professor Wilson shows that high rates of single parent families, especially among urban blacks, are the result more than anything else of the severe shortage of marriageable males, men who are employed and earning enough to support a family. Uh, in one Chicago neighborhood that uh, Professor Wilson studied, he found 
that the ratio of marriageable men to every 100 single women went from 70 in 1970 to 19 in 1985. In that same period, 90% of the manufacturing plants had either closed or moved out. Um, the rise in unmarried childbearing and single parent families, then I think it is so important to understand in relation to these figures that the rise in single parent families seems to result less from a weakening of the work ethic or the lure of welfare benefits or a deterioration of morality than it does from the plummeting demand for unskilled labor. During the first half of this century, when there was an expanding demand for unskilled labor, moving out of poverty didn't require the degree of skill and competence that it does now. Moving out of poverty did not require success at school. There were jobs that dropouts could drop out to, but no longer. Uh, the youngsters who are leaving school today without diplomas and without skills have very little chance of ever finding a job that pays well enough to support a family. So school success itself and the postponement of pregnancy with which it's very closely related uh, becomes a primary anti-poverty tool. Now I think it's very important to note that if when you're thinking about anti-poverty strategies, we no longer have to argue about whether to pursue economic solutions or service strategies. Economic strategies and service strategies aren't competitive. They are interactive because it, it's the structural economic changes that will bring more decent jobs at decent pay. And it's the decent services and the decent schooling that will make sure that the kids who are now stuck at the bottom will be equipped to take those jobs. There's a lot of research and experience that now converges to show that interventions that are applied early in the life cycle are the ones that are most likely to improve the prospects of disadvantaged children. The youngsters who become pregnant, who drop out, uh, who become delinquent, the youngsters that encounter these rotten outcomes, as I call them, because they are so rotten, not just for the kids, but also for their families and for society as a whole in terms of their consequences. But these youngsters who get into trouble in adolescence have already been in trouble for many years. So the earlier the intervention, before patterns of failure have become established, the more likely it is to be effective. The research is now very clear that long-term damage can be predicted from poor school performance and truancy as early as third and fourth grade. We also know that trouble in elementary school doesn't suddenly spring full-blown from the elementary school child. Rather, it correlates with a number of known risk factors. Among them, being born unwanted or to a teenage mother, low weight at birth, untreated health problems, failure to develop secure and trusting relationships with protective adults early in life, 
and lack of language and reasoning and coping skills at school entry. Now, the important news about those five risk factors is that every one of them has been successfully attacked with interventions that we know how to provide. In my book, I describe some of the programs that have, in fact, succeeded at either reducing the rate of rotten outcomes or reducing the rate at which these risk factors occur. And when you put the evidence together, it's clear that the canard that in the world of social programs nothing works is a canard. It's a myth that can't be maintained in the face of the evidence that we now have at hand. There are comprehensive prenatal care and nutrition programs that have been able to reduce the proportion of low birth weight babies. There are intensive family support, nurse home visiting, and child care programs that have resulted in fewer children removed from home and lower rates of child abuse and welfare dependence. There are high quality preschool programs that were able to follow their three and four year old participants into adulthood and found that they included fewer children needing remedial education, fewer dropouts, fewer delinquents, fewer teenage mothers, and fewer youngsters without jobs. There are elementary schools that were able to so change the climate of the school that whole populations of children who had been failing began to succeed. There are school-based health clinics, including a famous one right here that has, uh, in St. Paul, that have reduced the rate of teenage childbearing. And there are family planning programs that have been able to reduce the number of unwanted births. Although many of these programs operate in special and sometimes even idiosyncratic circumstances, their successes show that something can be done to address social problems that had previously been considered intractable. They provide a vision of what can be achieved, and they refute the contention that families in the underclass are beyond the reach of organized services. So the good news is not only that there are programs that work, but that we know how and why they work. Uh, one of the really exciting things as I was working on the book was to find that the patterns of what made for success were the same in health and education and social services and mental health and family support. And there, there are really four major elements that emerge as common to all of these, of these systems. First, successful programs are comprehensive and intensive. They provide directly or offer some way into a wide array of services that are delivered flexibly and coherently. When I think about this attribute of programs, I always think about um, Sister Mary Paul, who is a nun who runs a family service program in Brooklyn, and what she said about her program is true of all, of all of the other successful programs that I saw. She said that in this program, no one ever says, this may be what you need, but helping you get it is not part of my job or outside our agency's jurisdiction. It's very hard to do 
in a large system, but it's an absolutely essential component of success. A second attribute that marks successful programs is active collaboration across professional and bureaucratic boundaries. These programs have put disparate services from different systems together to enable a single frontline worker, whether it's a nurse home visitor or a welfare agency case manager, to respond to a whole basketful of troubles that uh, a family brings. Um, and they require not, they, they respond not with a fistful of referral slips that require families to go from pillar to post, meeting confusing and contradictory eligibility requirements at each stop. Rather, they actually mobilize the resources to respond to the real world problems that families encounter. Um, this stance that the workers in these programs, in these successful programs take of defining their job in terms of what the people they work with need rather than an agency's narrow mission is illustrated, I think, very well in the experience of Eugene Lang, whose program most of you know about. He's the New York businessman who promised the, to fund the college education of 66th graders um, some time ago in the early 1980s. Well, he found just a couple of weeks after he had made that promise that it wasn't enough to make the promise of money. He hired a full-time community organizer to work with those youngsters. Uh, the name of this young man was Johnny Rivera, and he stuck with those youngsters for the whole six years. And when I talked with him, he said, you just can't imagine the extent of these kids' unmet needs. He helped families find health care and social services and housing. When necessary, he went to the kids' homes. He rousted them out of bed to get them to school. He accompanied the parents and the kid when, um, to, meeting, to a meeting with the principal when the kid was suspended for fighting. Uh, and what he was able to do was provide such a wide array of intensive supports. And both Mr. Lang and Mr. Rivera believe that these supports were as important in accounting for the high proportion of youngsters that did make it through high school uh, as, as the promise of money. A third attribute of successful programs is that they deal with the child as part of a family and the family as part of a neighborhood and community. Most successful programs have deep roots in the community. They respond to needs that are perceived and identified by the community. In a successful child health program, the physician doesn't just look at the child uh, on the examining table who may have come in with a recurrent diarrhea. The physician thinks about what else does this family need in terms of, uh, of uh, support at home, a public health nurse, uh, eligibility for food stamps. I went to one um, 
rural clinic in, in Mississippi where they actually delivered clean water to homes that had no other access to it. I saw another memorable example of outreach into a community when I was in, in the Watts area of Los Angeles. There, the Department of Pediatrics at the King Drew Medical Center trains personnel for 90 daycare centers in the surrounding area. And in collaboration with the Los Angeles Public Schools, they set up on the grounds of the hospital a magnet high school in the health sciences. When I heard that the person who was the moving force behind this and who was the co-principal for two years was the chief of neonatology in the hospital, I, um, I, was, I found that most intriguing and I asked him when he was showing us around the uh, neonatal care unit, I asked him how he got into this and what he said I, I recorded so I can, I can tell it to you because it, it really moved me. He said, my job isn't done when I have saved them here. If you say to me that this infant, just because it exists, should be kept alive, then you incur the obligation of making sure that their options are not taken away from them as soon as they leave here. And that's why we're in the business of daycare and prenatal care and home visits and magnet high schools. The last attribute of successful programs that I want to highlight is that staff have the time and training and skills that are necessary to build relationships of trust and respect with children and families. Staff in these programs say they work in a setting that allows them to develop meaningful one-to-one -one relationships and to provide services respectfully, ungrudgingly, and collaboratively. They stress that establishing relationships of trust and respect requires a lot of support from professional colleagues and a lot of both time and skill. Many also say that the smallness of scale at the point of service delivery is crucial to maintain a climate where flexibility and informality can flourish. Now what it adds up to when you analyze these programs that succeed, especially with seriously disadvantaged families, is that children and their families living in persistent and concentrated poverty need first-class services. But you know, it seems to be very difficult in our society to provide first-class services to those, including children, whose families are not among society's winners. We have an especially hard time when the services are costly and what's good enough for the middle class is not good for disadvantaged populations. As, as an example, daycare that may suffice for the majority of children because it meets minimum standards of health and safety will free up a mother for training or employment, but if it's not enriched far beyond minimum standards, it will do nothing to increase the social capital that a disadvantaged child brings to school. And that can make the crucial difference between a high or a very slim chance of school success for children at risk. 
But especially when funds are scarce, there are powerful pressures to see how circumscribed a service we can get away with. I think there's real reason to fear that as states implement last year's welfare reform legislation, they may find there's just enough money to provide minimalist daycare, which may be enough to get a mother into job training or employment, but not enough to improve the odds of school success and success in life for her children. The needs of disadvantaged children can't be met on the cheap. Effective services will save money in the long run, but in the short run, new funds are going to be required from both federal and state budgets, both to fully implement the programs like Head Start and the WIC Nutrition Program that already work on a national scale, but also to extend the programs that have till now been available to only a few and in a very few places. President Bush has said that although investment in children has to have the highest priority, he says we have more will than wallet. But it seems to me that the size of our national wallet and how we allocate its contents are not an accident of nature. They are a product of our political will. So if we can find the money to bail out the failing SNLs, if we can find the money to build new stealth bombers at a time of glasnost, can't we find the money to invest in the future that is represented by our children? You know, I, I, think, I think there is a lot more agreement on this point than some of our national leaders realize, and we've got to let them know. Um, but you recognize that the kind of changes I'm talking about require not money alone, but more than money. They also require a massive reorientation of institutions and the systems within which they operate. Because comprehensiveness, flexibility, and most of the other key attributes of successful programs are at odds with the ways that most large institutions and systems are funded and are expected to assure accountability and quality and equity. Um, the fact that the returns on preventive investments are a long time in coming complicates the politics still further. Important program outcomes, like the effect of good childcare and preschool education on increasing the chances of high school completion and decreasing the rate of crime and welfare dependency, are difficult to document because of the distance in time and place between intervention and outcome. As with most investments in growth, the returns on preventive interventions come years later and typically don't show up on the same budget as the agency making the investment or before the politician who has taken the lead is up for re-election. Uh, Mississippi's Governor Ray Mabus says a lot of what we're trying to do about prenatal care, early childhood, and the schools won't make much impact on the generation that's paying for it. 
It takes a long time to implement and reap the returns on these things, but you have to make a start. And making a start on a long journey is what I'm talking about. The most promising road to the prevention of early childbearing, school dropout, delinquency, and even drug abuse is to reduce the risk factors that we now know how to reduce. We can do that one step at a time, but we can't get where we have to go only by tinkering with isolated pieces at the margin. For people who can only get a handle on an isolated piece, I say we have to learn how that piece connects to the rest of the machinery and how to make sure that that piece becomes a lever to bring about more fundamental change. I believe that the most important next steps are first, to broaden the consensus around the paramount importance of providing first-class services and financing those services properly to the children and families who are living in the greatest adversity. Second, service providers have to learn how to get better at collaborating and sharing in order to put a critical mass, a critical aggregation of high-quality services together at the local level and make them coherent, not just for individually identified children or families who are in trouble, but for entire neighborhoods, entire populations at risk, especially where social dislocation is concentrated. I don't have the answers for how it can all be put together or how to sort out the roles of schools, health programs, social agencies, old-fashioned settlement houses, business, or private philanthropy. I do know we have the elements of successful programs to build on. I do know that most of the work has to be done locally, but it won't succeed if it's done only locally. Local communities have to own and shape their own programs, but states and the federal government as well must remove the most important impediments to providing coherent services and provide new incentives for collaboration. Otherwise, local efforts are simply too hard to sustain. Now, one mechanism for doing this would be some kind of user-friendly, flexible super fund that would bring from the federal or state governments health, education, and social service funds into areas of highest need without the customary restrictions, without the customary categorical um, fragmentation that is, that is now so prevalent. Uh, there are a lot of ways that this might be done. One would be simply to have a set-aside of a certain proportion of funds that are already going into those communities, but that would be earmarked for areas of the highest concentration of poverty and would come to those communities with, in ways that would make them easier to use. Uh, let me just conclude by saying that we are in a position to build on past successes but we can't do it at bargain basement prices. We can't do it overnight. 
but we can be certain that if it's done well, it will make a difference in the life of this nation. My colleague, Marion Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund, says that we're in a point in this country today where doing what is right has converged with what we have to do to save our national skins. I think that is a very important point to remember, especially now that there is a broad consensus not only about the high stakes, but now that we have so much of the knowledge that we need. So each of us, in our collective and individual capacities, can really seize on a, a new opportunity. We can make sure that the most excellent education and health care and social services and child care and family supports that we as a society know how to provide will reach the children and families who need them the most. Then the children who are growing up without hope today will stand a real chance of becoming the contributing citizens of tomorrow. And then each one of us will have a chance to live in true community with all our fellow citizens. Thank you. Ms. Shore, in, in your book you said, we are lacking a throbbing vital center or linkage to decision-making. Uh, I would attest to all of us sitting here today that you are a throbbing vital center that's going to help it uh, come alive. And we thank you and we applaud you. Let me remind our radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. And you've just heard Elizabeth B. Shore speaking on the topic, Fighting Poverty, Early Interventions That Work. Our co-sponsor today is the McKnight Foundation. And I understand that many of the people who work with entities supported by the foundation in whole or part that, that bear on the poverty issue, many of those staff people are here today and we welcome them and salute the work they're doing. Let me indicate that the radio audience also has the privilege of uh, phoning in questions, even as you, the audience, the live audience here, uh, are encouraged now, actually, to send your yellow cards to the aisles for the questions that you'd, you'd like to pose. For the radio audience, the phone number is 332-3421. 332-3421. Well, Ms. Shore, would you be willing to return to the podium, please? Uh, allow me just to begin by saying uh, thanks to your husband, Daniel Shore, for putting the uh, blessing on your coming. <laughs> we, we delighted in his presence here a, a little over a year ago. Uh, might you be willing to comment on how you, uh, you work together? I gather that uh, this is a shared concern, and indeed the book reflects some common authorship, et cetera. We worked together on this book very painfully. Um, <laughs> when I realized, I, st the, I began work on the book 
and realized when I got a, oh, I guess a couple of years into it, that there was a very exciting story to tell here about, about programs that had been successful. And I concluded that this was a, a story that needed to go beyond the audience that I could reach with my somewhat cumbersome writing and um, asked uh, my husband, Dan, if he would collaborate with me in, um, in writing a book that would re reach a larger audience. Um, he agreed to do that. And um, the only thing that kept us going was the book clearly kept getting better and better. But if I have any advice to, to give, it's that, that is not a really wonderful part of marriage to try to write a book together. Um, I, we, we have some friends who, um, who have written five books together, and I called them. And um, my friends, I said to my friend Susan, I said, how did you manage? And she said, well, you have, what I have to say is the first year I cried. Um, it, it, is, it is a very difficult thing to do together, but I am so pleased that we stuck with it because those of you who have looked at the book uh, will find it is a good read, which I owe entirely to my husband. And we have learned, once again, to be very patient with each other. We just had to suspend doing that for a little while. Uh, but, uh, but we have the book to show for it, and, uh, so it, it has a happy ending. <laughs> here are two that kind of come together. I'll read them both. What are the political possibilities of implementing the flexible super fund which you described? And then, bravo, have you considered running for president? <laughs> <laughs> uh, question, your super fund uh, conglomeration should work if all mental health uh, dollars uh, were pooled and we could build affordable housing in which to deliver these services. Any help or hope for HUD helping? Well, there's a... The, um, the question about whether the idea of a, of a flexible super fund is visionary or practical, I don't know the answer to. Uh, it is intended to be visionary in the sense that we really have to have something that will get us out of, um, of the fix we're in, where we tend to keep adding one little piece at a time uh, when we find that what we have isn't working. And in some ways, while adding a little piece at a time improves things for some people, it complicates it for others. So we have this crazy patchwork of services, whether you look at health or you look at, at uh, social services, and they're all overwhelmed, and none of them can do their jobs right. Uh, so how can we take a fundamental step beyond where we are now? Um, I believe that the step has to be big enough to have people have the sense that this is not business as usual, that there is a new departure and a new determination to solve uh, these, these urgent problems. I think it can't be so big 
that the whole thing becomes unwieldy. And that's why it seems to me if we focus on areas of greatest need, the, the new ways that funds would flow would not completely disrupt existing systems. But on the other hand, you would get what none of the changes that have been made over, or I shouldn't say none, very few of the changes of the past have succeeded in doing, and that is making sure that the best services get to those who need them most. Because what we have operating right now is what is an English sociologist who called it the inverse care law. The people who need the best services, the people who need the best schools get the worst. This is an attempt to turn that around. And uh, it may not be the only strategy that would work, but it's an attempt to get the discussion going around how can we take, make some fundamental changes, which certainly involves how, how money flows to local communities. What role can religious congregations play in seeing that we do what is right and necessary for children in need? Do you have any sense of that? Yes, it seems to me that um, religious congregations are among those that really recognize uh, most explicitly that we're all in this together and can therefore provide some of the moral leadership that it's going to take. I think it takes a combination of very practical um, understanding of our self-interest. We, the, the business people say we need skilled workers to take entry-level jobs, and if we can't get them, we're not gonna be competitive with Japan. That's one arena from which I think the pressure for change is gonna come. But there's another arena, which is the moral arena, which is to say we have to do it because it is right. Because, and I think it's the religious uh, communities that are, that are ones that have provided the leadership for this notion that we don't want to be a polarized society of haves and have-nots, that we want to live in community with one another. Now, a lot of religious uh, communities are also well enough organized so that they can both do something about these issues at the local level in a very direct way and have some impact on how some of our decision makers think about these issues. Daycare seems to be the problem for younger women who absolutely must work. Can you foresee a national policy uh, of uh, promoting or guarantee the right of every child to such care? And uh, other questions relate to the same question. A crucial federal vote is coming up today. on comprehensive child care services today. Uh, what are its chances of passing? How can we argue for the comprehensive system we know children uh, need in face of the administration's strategy of tax credits only? Um, I think that um, 
one can make predictions about something that's going to happen a little ways off, but I wouldn't dare to make predictions about something that's going to happen today, because you're going to remember when you see the evening news whether I was right or not. Mm. And it is, I, I think it is safe to say it's going to be a very close vote on the uh, child care legislation. Whichever way it goes, even if, if the present version passes, we know that it will be far from guaranteeing every child quality daycare. Um, I think if legislation passes uh, in the Congress uh, in this session, it's going to take a lot of work in states and localities to make sure that the way that program is implemented guarantees quality services, especially for the kids for whom it makes the most difference. Um, I, I think it's very hard because the pressure for daycare has come not just from child advocates, but from employers who are most concerned about having a reliable workforce and to some extent from women who really don't understand the stake that, uh, that their kids face in what kind of daycare they, they put them in. And they need, and these women who are working because it takes two incomes today to stay in the middle class and they don't have a lot of choice about whether they work or not. They are so concerned about just keeping their heads above water, they need to keep that job, they need daycare to keep that job, and it's easy to lose track of the importance of high quality daycare. Now, certainly a start has to be a good piece of federal legislation. Uh, I think one of the most important pieces of that legislation is that it will permit the already successful Head Start program to be an all-day program and a year-round program. Uh, and it will put a lot more money, make a lot more money available, or not a lot more, some more money available to support quality daycare. And we have to make sure that that is, in fact, how it's implemented. Here's a question from the radio audience. In the absence of adequate funding, should we reach out to more children or spend it on quality care for fewer children? Hmm. Uh, if, I, if I understand the question correctly, it has to do with this notion that I touched on in my talk about targeting services to those that are in greatest need. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the most difficult questions, whether it makes sense to try to spread scarce resources thinly and evenly, or whether it makes sense to put those resources where they are most needed. Now, one answer to that question is the resources don't have to be as scarce as we continually think they are. We, we have to do something about getting more resources into um, services for, um, for children and families. But after that, it seems to me that if 
you decide that to use uh, limited funds and make them available very widely, the chances of their trickling down to those who need them most and the chances that the programs will be, um, will be appropriate to those who need them most are very small. I, therefore, without a lot of conviction that I'm right, I, therefore, lean toward targeting services on populations, not on individuals, not to make everybody go through yet more eligibility screening and testing and so on, but on populations, on neighborhoods where the need is greatest. Thank you. This is from the audience. You seemed to slide right over the question of accountability of welfare programs. Please clarify your stance on how you would make these programs accountable to the taxpayer. I, I did seem to slide right over that, but only because I was trying to cover a lot of ground. It is the single issue that um, when I'm not speaking in public, I'm working the most on. I think it is the single issue that requ requires the greatest new understanding and really some new research and a lot of experimentation. I think we have the fewest answers around that. It is absolutely clear that all of these programs have to be held accountable. It is absolutely clear that the way we've held these programs accountable has made it almost impossible to actually deliver services. So are there other ways of assuring accountability than detailed regulations? Well, I suggest to you that, for example, the Head Start program has been able to set clear federal standards, but there's an enormous amount of variation at the local community level in how those standards are implemented. The program has to provide health services, but nobody tells the local community whether you contract with a local doctor, with the local health department, whether you hire a nurse. Um, so the, the combination of clear standards, but staying out of detailed input regulations has worked in Head Start. There are a number of people working with the schools who, have, who are developing some new outcome measures. At, in the state of Maryland, the Commissioner of Education developed these outcome measures and gave individual schools a choice. They could either adhere to the regulations in effect having to do with whom you can hire and what hours you're open and so on and so forth, or if you wanted to innovate, if you wanted to try something different, you could choose to be measured on the basis of outcomes of the students. You could choose to be measured on the basis of what those youngsters have learned, how long they stayed in school, how competent they became. Now, I think we can do the same thing in 
child protection services. We can do the same thing in, um, in, um, in health services. Uh, instead of measuring how many visits to how many persons with such and such a credential, you measure what kind of health outcomes these kids have achieved. Uh, I think it, it's, it's going to be very hard to do, but I don't think it is beyond our creativity and imagination. And one of my fantasies is that when we do stop taking, spending all our, all our money on defense, not only will we free up some money, but some of the creative genius that has gone into designing some of our weapon systems could be put to use on figuring out some of these very complicated problems, and accountability is one of them. Another question or comment from the audience. A recent article in the Star Tribune reported that many doctors are refusing to take any more Medicaid patients because it costs them to serve these patients. As a result, many poor women are not able to receive prenatal care. What is your response to this trend? It, the, um, the question represents a, a very real problem, and it isn't just here, but it's, it's everywhere, where doctors, the, the Medicaid programs are strapped, they are cutting back on, um, on fees paid, they are cutting back in New York City on the number of visits they will pay for. Uh, they are, in order to assure accountability, increasing the paperwork, and doctors say, who needs it? And uh, they're serving fewer and fewer Medicaid patients. The public hospitals that try to fill in for, for these, um, uh, try to fill in the gap, uh, are getting more and more beleaguered. Uh, they also, it costs them more than they are getting, than they are getting reimbursed by Medicaid. I think it's, it is becoming more and more clear that the health system under which we are now trying to operate is simply not working. It isn't, uh, we, we spend more money in this country on personal health services, a greater proportion of our gross national product than any other country, and we do not have the highest, uh, the highest achievements in, um, in maintaining health. Uh, our infant mortality is 17th in the world. Um, we see our life expectancy is not the greatest. So I think we are coming to see that not only is Medicaid not working, but that the rest of the health system isn't working. Now, there, there are several things that, that can be done, at least in the short run. And one of them is that the people who are trying to deliver prenatal care through health clinics, through community health centers, through public health centers, make common cause with the people in those areas who are trying to deliver the preschool services, the child care services, the social services, and the family supports. And that there be more and more of an alliance between maternal and child health, and the other services that young families need. Uh, so that some of that money 
would be flowing not through the Medicaid mills or the doctors who refuse to even take the money, but instead be flowing through organized health services or even a broader array of neighborhood-based services. Thank you. What is the appropriate role for the business community or foundations in promoting successful early intervention programs for disadvantaged youth? Well, I think both the business community and the foundations in this community have already made an extraordinary difference. Uh, the business community has provided leadership in, first of all, focusing on the problem, and secondly, in, in, um, in defining some of the solutions and giving support to some of those solutions. Uh, the Committee on Economic Development, which consists of, uh, I believe, 200 leading business people, is the one that has provided the greatest leadership on behalf of early investment in children. Foundations, as well as business, are able to provide some of the glue that can hold some of these services together. In addition to funding direct services, they are the ones that can help local communities and help even neighborhoods to put services together so they become more coherent and become, uh, become more, more coherent and become easier to use. Uh, especially in the last 10 years, if it hadn't been for private business, concerned citizens, and foundations, we would be still a lot worse off than we are today because of the enormous cutbacks in government funding. But there's no way that business and foundations can make up for the neglect of, of government. But they sure can help, and as they have done, can really point the way for that, uh, that larger efforts funded with public funds can take. You quoted a colleague of yours, Marine Wright Edelman, of the uh, Children's Defense Fund, with whom you've worked, uh, as saying, doing what, right, doing what is right is necessary to saving our national skins. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that represents a combination of the ideal and the pragmatic, and I think you have wed those beautifully in what you've shared with us today. Furthermore, our governor has declared in the state of Minnesota that October 8th of this year is Children's Day, and October 8 to 14 is Children's Week, and all citizens of Minnesota are committed and resolved to become involved to make children our number one priority. Your visit couldn't have been better timed. Thank you. <laughs>